What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. I'm entering this log for the record. This is Mark Watney. And I'm still alive. Obviously. Matt Damon has been left behind on Mars. Do you rescue him? Or do you go see the new Bond movie instead? Fool me once, Matt Damon. Shame on you. Fool me twice? Spectre it is. <laughs> now, see, I thought we'd let go a certain 2014 space movie, Josh. <laughs> Matt Damon's The Martian and The Return of Bond, James Bond, a couple of many highly anticipated movies this fall. This week, our fall movie preview with special guest Michael Phillips from the Chicago Tribune. That and more. Damn it, I can't leave Damon up there alone. Be right back. Ahead on Film Spotting. Spotting is brought to you by Audible.com, the internet's leading provider of audiobooks. Matthew McConaughey's performance of Summer Farmer is a free download through September 30. Get it at audible.com slash summerfarmer. We're also brought to you by Mubi, a curated online cinema that brings its members a handpicked selection of the best independent, international, and classic films. And among the three films we're going to highlight available on Mubi right now, Josh, is a film that is a little bit of an anomaly for me from this director because I'm in the minority critically, in terms of being a fan of the work of James Gray, but I really like Two Lovers, drawing from European art houses, but uniquely American and from the 70s New Hollywood, but distinctly modern. His emotionally complex dramas with Joaquin Phoenix are one of a kind today. Raptures to the eye, volcanic underneath. I think Two Lovers is the one Gray film I haven't seen. Oh, really? So I'll have to get to that. Also at Mubi, well, South Korea's Hong Sang-soo won the Golden Leopard at Locarno this month, so they're celebrating that with a double bill of Hong Sang-soo films. The first is The Day He Arrives. Hong's deceptively simple mind benders, Romare meets Charlie Kaufman, maybe, are shoestring digital cinema at its most inventive, movie says, including this witty, tragicomic time warp. Another Hong film is In Another Country. Movie describes it as one of his most carefree pictures, a deliciously playful riff on love and the possibilities of fiction, starring Isabel Huppert in three roles. Cahé du Cinema called it one of the best of 2012. Every day, movies curators introduce a new title and you have 30 days to watch it. That means there's always 30 wonderful films to enjoy, all for only $4.99 a month. You can also use their mobile app to download films to watch offline. Film spotting listeners can try movie free for one month. Just go to movie.com slash film spotting to redeem now. That's M-U-B-I dot com slash film spotting. You're listening to Film Spotting, a big show this week as we share a pair of top five lists based entirely on conjecture. It's our fall movie preview extravaganza. We'll get to our five most anticipated titles scheduled for release before the Thanksgiving holiday. And later in the show, the five questions we have about the fall movie lineup. Yes, it will be a big show, made even bigger and classier with the addition of our friend and regular guest here on Film Spotting, Michael Phillips from the Chicago Tribune. It's been a while, Michael. Great to see you. Good to see you both. You know, you're really here because we haven't done a full show the whole summer. We've That's been right. repeating top five. Right. There's no way we could jump in on our own and carry 
one show, so we needed you to. I'm here. I'm bringing the class. Thank you. I'm bringing the class. Well, let's get into our top five most anticipated fall movies with the film that's currently winning our film spotting poll, which asks listeners to name their most anticipated movie of the fall. You had no authority. None. Mexico City. What were you doing there? I was taking some overdue holiday. Daniel Craig, back for the fourth time as 007 in the trailer there for the new Bond installment, Spectre. Skyfall director Sam Mendes also returning, along with a cast that includes Ray Fiennes and Christoph Waltz. So, Spectre, as predicted by me, or at least I said that was the movie on the list that I was most looking forward to. Turns out, film spotting listeners are in agreement with me, Josh, on that one. 25% of them are. The others in the top three here currently, Ridley Scott's The Martian. That's not far behind, getting 22% of the vote. 20% of the vote is going for my choice, Guillermo del Toro's Crimson Peak. There are a few other films, including the latest Spielberg-Hanks collaboration, Bridge of Spies, that are among the options in our poll. So we'll see if the results change after sharing some of our picks on the show. We're going to give the final results next week, and you can still vote at filmspotting.net. Of course, if you do vote and you leave a comment, we'd love to know where you're listening from. Enough of polls, though. Let's get into our top five, and we're going to go kind of quickly here through our first two picks. So, Michael, again, ending at Thanksgiving, lead us off. Tell us two of the movies that are on your most anticipated You know, I, okay, I haven't seen it. Clearly, I haven't seen it, but uh, it's opening very soon. Black Mass, mm-hmm. starring Johnny Depp, is Whitey Bulger. You know, the, the trailers just make it seem like, which, of course, is the point of a trailer, that the actor this film is showcasing is is really engaged and dynamic in a way that maybe we haven't seen Johnny Depp dive in quite that far in a while. I, you know, there's plenty of externals for the guy to respond to. It's a whole new look, uh, as always, for Depp. But I don't know. Something about it gives me a, a feeling that he's actually, hopefully, rediscovering his, his chops as, a, as an actor in this mm-hmm. film. I'd love to see that. I'd yeah. love to see it. Sure. Yeah. Great actor. What about your number Thinking, four? My number four is actually The Martian with Matt Damon. And that's uh, Ridley Scott, who, who's, you know, the last film in this realm, uh, Prometheus, mixed to positive for me. But I think something about Damon uh, suggests that he really can take a, a scenario like we had a little bit with Gravity, I'm guessing. I'm sort of sussing out that uh, he can really carry a movie uh, lightly on, on, on his shoulders. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, you know, I'm just, I'm just intrigued. I'm, I hope it's a really good match. So. Well, I'm with you there, Michael, on number five, Black Mass. I have it, too. I think, you know, he looks like Depp is wearing a few wigs and some elaborate makeup, but nothing like (laughs) what we've been used to lately. So maybe it is going to be a return to that less man or less theatrical style of acting, which we know he can pull off, right, from uh, Donnie Brasco, similarly themed. Bonus with this, too, the batch. Benedict Cumberbatch is in the cast. He's in Black Mass? Yeah. Joel Edgerton as well, supporting parts for these guys. So that does... The Batch uh, and The Edge are in this together? Exactly. Fantastic. Sounds like a great 80s cop movie. (laughs) The director here is Scott Cooper. Crazy Heart, Out of the Furnace. I know we reviewed Out of the Furnace, I think, Adam. We were both sort of mixed on it. But um, the trailer, you're right, Michael, does look pretty exciting. My number four is... The Hunger Games, Mockingjay Part 2. We're an officially now a pro Hunger Games show. We are, right because Adam? I like the last movie. <laughs> we and that? I'm looking forward to the next one. No, yeah, how much of it is just that these things grind you down eventually? Oh, you know, it's true. Like, I was, I, there I was at the, twi- I forget which Twilight movie. If it was the 14th or the 17th one. Like, now, wait, uh, Michael, thumbs Michael, up. Uh, you can't compare Twilight to the Hunger Games franchise. Uh, well, of yes, course. Yes, he can. For, he sh- did. for sheer acting firepower, of course, nobody can beat the Taylor Lautner and, uh, you know. 
know. <laughs> Please. But anyway, all right, I'll, I'll shut up. I'll shut up. <laughs> well, I've enjoyed the series from the start. And, um, you know, I really think that it's smart sci-fi. I like how Jennifer Lawrence has I know, I like used that character I like and also reflected her stardom a little bit, too, with it. So I'm eager to see how this ends. I didn't I didn't end up finishing the books. I only read the first one. So I'm still in suspense. <laughs> well, I do love Jennifer Lawrence as that character, and I love where the last installment left her. So I'm curious to see where it picks up. My number five is a movie from Todd Haynes. It's Carol. <laughs> and this was actually my number four most anticipated performance of 2014. Mm-hmm. Back when we thought this was going to come out, one of my classic cheats, I had Kate Blanchett and Rooney Mara together counting them as one. But I like Todd Haynes a lot as a director. I love both of those performers. And it was already in contention for this top five. Pushed over the top, Josh, I don't know if you saw this or not, by our friend David Ehrlich. His five-star review of Carol, he's seen it, gave it five stars on Letterboxd, unless he's joking, which after you hear his review, maybe he is, but it's beautiful. He says, probably as close as I'll ever come to knowing what it feels like to find Jesus. And then he adds, good for David. He adds, update, I found Jesus, Carol was better. (laughs) Wow. So, I mean... How it's you, a little bit of an apples. It's see kind it. of an apples and oranges <laughs> comparison, though. No, maybe, right? <laughs> maybe. <laughs> we'll see, Michael. I've seen it, pal. Oh, you have. I saw it at Con. At Con, of course. Actually, nobody, you did. Co- nobody, nobody uh, pronounces it that way. It's Can. <laughs> Not here in the Midwest, yeah, anyway. No, it's, can. it's Can in the Midwest, but it's Can, sort of in the middle. No, it's it's it's. I'm not going to say anymore. Until... Not as good as Jesus. <laughs> how does it compare on the Jesus <laughs> scale? Yeah, okay, if you. I mean, put, that's how we're all rating Carol put Buddha, <laughs> Jesus, and you know Elron on the spectrum. I don't know where it lands. Actually, <laughs> okay. I haven't thought about it yet. I don't know if we want to know. I think David got his hands on that because it's playing the New York Film Festival in October. It is supposed to open in limited release on November 20th. Michael, my number four is your number four. A little bit of overlap. It's The Martian. And I did not think this was going to make my top five until I broke down and I watched the trailer. And it turns out my reaction was very similar to one of our listeners. I looked at our poll comments today and Kevin in St. Louis said this. There's something about The Martian that really has my curiosity peaked. And no, it's not the source material of which I am woefully unread. The director, I'm a pretty mid-level Scott admirer or the impressive cast. I believe it's the descriptions I've heard of the story breaking down to one scene after the other of Matt Damon having to solve problems like the get this to fit into this using nothing but this scene from Apollo 13. That just appeals directly to the storyteller in me. Watching a character come up with inventive solutions to complicated problems is exactly how I would love to spend my fall movie season. And that's borne out in the trailer, no pun intended, borne out in the trailer where Damon just has that right kind of sensibility and that deadpan sense of humor where he can take a really dire situation like that but just focus on the immediate and kind of find the humor in the absurdity of the situation he's in. And maybe there's something about it, too, that just appeals to me, not as someone who admires storytelling, but someone who recognizes that even with seven days worth of food and water, I'd only last about three on Mars. <laughs> and so I'm just so I'm so impressed with someone who could do something along these lines that right. I'm really curious to see the Martian. I'm with so, you, Kevin. So you don't think this, this that scenario would bring out the the best in your survival instincts? <laughs> no. Or just the quickest? This is, a guy, this is a guy who I don't think he's ever camped. So Well, I well, tried to avoid it. it. It didn't go well. Wait a minute. You, you told me you went to the Dells recently. Isn't <laughs> That's that, right. Isn't that camping? <laughs> Too close for, for my comfort, Michael. <laughs> <All> <laughs> the right. Martian opens wide on October 2nd. So, okay, we're going to get now into our top three most anticipated fall movies. And one of the disclaimers we haven't thrown out there yet is that, well, we've mentioned that we've stopped at Thanksgiving. But what that means, and I didn't really realize fully what it meant until I started diving in and doing my research, it meant that 
really, for me, the most exciting titles that are coming out over the next three or four months are not going to be eligible for our list. Well, like which ones? Which ones? You, which ones are you talking about? You're talking about anything lightsaber related, or <laughs> exactly? Where's mine, Michael? Oh, well, we need hold to, on. Yeah, hold on. We'll we need to do you, some uh, battle I, here. I brought a couple. I, I brought a couple of lightsabers from be uh, armed for this. This is not going to go well. Hang on. Look, <laughs> you're already having an equipment <laughs> malfunction. <laughs> you remember what happened at the 500th show? We almost impaled a listener. There we go. See, this is great. This is uh, this is going to be great radio because oh there's not there's not there's nothing visual about a lightsaber. Josh, get a picture. Of okay, this. Now, now check it out. You can hear it. Oh man! See, this is—I think the lightsaber is cooler than really most of the Star Wars movies so far. The fact that you can buy one of these is great, and and a lot of us are having a hard time focusing on the fall prospects. You know, the films up up to Thanksgiving. When you have this thing, this Star Wars thing coming a month later at Christmas, it's very hard to focus on the it fall. Is. It is, and I resent just... it. I resent having to focus. <laughs> I'm on the with fall. you. That's okay. how I felt after putting together this list and seeing all the great movies we couldn't include. Like, yes. The Force Awakens from J.J. Abrams. And for those who were envisioning this whole scenario with the sound effects at home, Michael was purple, I was green, and Josh was <laughs> and refereeing. none of us know which characters that represents, so we've lost I'm a all good guy, our Star Wars yeah, cred. Or a bad guy. Sorry about that. But right. in addition to The Force Awakens... I was Awakens, Hermione. No, I'm sorry. That's a different oh, franchise. Wow. Right. Well, I'll be Katniss. <laughs> that was Twilight. <laughs> good, good. <laughs> in addition to The Force Awakens, there's also a little Quentin Tarantino picture coming out around Christmas called The Hateful Eight. And a lot of people on Twitter said, Adam... Why are you having so much trouble? Michael Fassbender's in about 50 movies alone coming out this fall season. And we know you're excited about Macbeth with Fassbender and Marion Cotillard. But that for us is also a December release. So there's a lot of titles like that we were really intrigued by, even going back to our year preview, looking ahead to this whole year in 2015, where we did that list in January. Night of Cups, the latest from Terrence Malick, Mm. was at the top or near the top of both of our lists, and that's now been pushed to 2016. So a lot of interesting films that either weren't eligible because they are coming out at Christmas or it turns out they're not coming out at all until 2016. Another one of those? How about this? We should just call this list permanently the Jeff Nichols Memorial List because Midnight Special, his latest film, was on our list of the most anticipated films of 2014. We made it ineligible then for 2015, even though we thought it was going to come out. And now it turns out it's a 2016 film. Will it be eligible next year? I don't know. I don't know. Especially, It shouldn't be because it's going to be a 2017 release at this well, point. Well, yeah, that's so, right. I can't wait to see it, Jeff Nichols. I don't know what's taking so long, but we'll just have to keep anticipating it. So, Michael, after that lovely, dramatic setup... With the lightsabers, what's yes. your number three? My number three is the Bond film you mentioned, Spectre. I, I do, I do think that it's a real, it's very gratifying to see that last film sort of right the course. Because I thought the second film with Craig was really a substantial disappointment. Yes, which was called shit, Quantum of Solace. Okay. Which, how could you? Quantum, yeah. Quantum of Solace. How could you forget that? I, well, you know, I I forgot the movie as I was watching it too because it, it was directed by a guy who didn't Mark Forster didn't have any particular facility for that sort of large scale action and um, I mean of all of them though I still I still prefer the Casino Royale that kind of started the whole mm-hmm. thing with Craig and uh, but certainly Mendes uh, who immediately after this huge success of Skyfall, you know, said, no, I don't want to make another one. Then they gave him $200 million and he made it. But Is that encouraging? Uh, I do I do worry that, I, you know what, though? I do, those films have to be big, and they have to take you halfway around the world twice. Uh, that's just sort of, that's in the DNA of this, uh, of Ian Fleming's stories. But I do wonder, 
I'm a little concerned about the size, just the sheer massive size of that budget. It's going to be one of the most expensive movies ever made. I don't know. Is that the right film to spend really that much money? Mm. I don't know. It's it's a great question, and I love to see it at number three on your list because last week when I answered it as my number one among our poll options, Josh scoffed at me. He scoffed, I say, that I was that hey, excited about Spectre. I like Skyfall fine enough, but I think you're giving me support here. What is Mendes going to do now that he didn't already do well in Skyfall? It sounds like if he didn't even want to make the thing, he didn't have many ideas. We'll so. see. I will see. I mean, it's all in the script, and, and that was the thing they they were fumbling around openly with uh, Quantum of Solace. They did not have, they didn't even go into production with that script completed, and it's been again, kind of gratifying to see and hear in the wake of that, uh, Daniel Craig, among others, uh, talk about how we will never do that. It's just simply too nerve-wracking. They were rewriting on the set. You know, actors were, and it's just that's why that movie doesn't work. You yeah. know? I mean, it's funny. Some, some Movie making is so mysterious and so many moving parts and everything, and sometimes it does come down to a very simple thing of like, is does this scene work? Does the story work? And uh, that doesn't fly in the face of the auteur theory. That just simply supports it because it's, you know, no no one does these things. Anyway, we'll hmm. see. I, I still like, it's the perpetual adolescent in you that's sort of male adolescent in you, I guess, that makes you want to see where they're actually taking Bond now that he's well into this new century. And he's got a lot of, he's still got a lot of imitators and hangers on. And it's just kind of a miracle that franchise has, you know, kept cooking since 1962. Yeah. Well, I have not thought this through. That's not going to stop me from saying it because I was thinking about why I was so excited about Spectre, why the trailer seemed so appealing to me. I didn't have a great answer for you, Josh, and I'm not sure I still do. But one of the things I keep coming back to is something along the lines of what you were saying, Michael, where it seems so big and expansive and the budget and and just everything about the scope of it seems so large. And yet at its core, in contrast to some of the current big action franchises we have now, like the Mission Impossible movies, the Furious movies, where, yes, Vin Diesel is kind of the guy, but you also have The Rock and you've got everybody else on board. And it's all about this family and this gang. It's it's Daniel Craig. Mm. It's all about the simplicity of Daniel Craig and the weapon that he is and that sort of dark angst that seems to be always inside of him. And so that grounds that whole franchise for me. I just like watching Craig as Bond. Yeah, I haven't mm. tired of him in the role yet. So, no, so no, there's not at all. some hope in that for no, sure. No, and I think, I mean, they're clearly, they're, they're sort of intelligently spaced, I think, in terms of not burning out the audience. This is a handy thing with the franchise. And it's actually, it's, it's helped the Mission Impossible franchises too. And this last Mission Impossible actually seemed like a really good Bond film to me in many mm-hmm. ways. You know, kind of a good, yeah. you know, the right size uh, and the right the right amount of globe trotting for my, for my taste. And, um, yeah, anyway, hmm. yeah, we'll see. We'll see. Yeah. My number three is a little bit like my number five. It's another crime drama like Black Mass. This one's Sicario. And it has Emily Blunt as an FBI agent dropped into the drug war along the U.S.-Mexico border. State Department is pulling an agent that specializes in responding to escalated cartel activity. This is not my department. FBI! be a part of this do we get an opportunity of the men responsible for today the men who are really responsible for today blunt for me that's the real big draw here it's great to see her get a lead role especially after i really think she proved her action chops in edge of tomorrow i think she actually almost stole that movie from tom cruise 
which is hard to do. I like Cruz and, and stuff like that. The cast also includes Benicio Del Toro and Josh Brolin, so we will not be short on sleeves. That is definitely guaranteed. <laughs> And directed by Denis Villeneuve. Now, yes. this is a filmmaker who his movies, Prisoners, Enemy, they haven't always entirely worked for me. But I will say they've both been very intriguing and uh, some provocative stuff in both of those. So I'm waiting for his style to click with me and maybe this will be it. Sicario opens on September 18. He knows how to craft a mood. Oh, yeah. I mean, he's got talent to spare and interesting ideas. Like I said, it just um, all that stuff didn't quite merge in the right way for my sensibility sure. before. And maybe those are the only two films of his I'm really familiar with, but another director known for these really small scale productions. And now I've seen the trailer for Sicario and there's nothing small no, about it. No, it'll be a big jump. All right. My number three most anticipated film of the fall. I think the budget, Michael, just came in a little bit shy of the 200 million mark <laughs> for the bond. It's room. I mean, they had to spend so much on the production design I mean, and the just set the right room. based on the Emma Donahue novel, which I have not read. The plot is pretty simple. A woman is being held captive in a single small room. She's been there for several years. She has a five-year-old son in the room with her. So you've got this great high concept pressure cooker of a movie, and it turns out that the trailer supports that. It's an intense uneasy experience just watching the two-minute trailer. Brie Larson helps great in Short Term 12. I've enjoyed her in really every role I've seen her in. Good in Trainwreck, too. Very, yeah, very she good. Yeah, she is. She's really good in Trainwreck. That's right, as Amy Schumer's sister. She's the woman here at the center of it. And, of course, it sounds a little bit Kafkaesque, and, well, I like Kafkaesque things. And the director, it turns out, is Lenny Abramson, who is the Irish director who did Frank, another movie about a trapped character only in Frank. It's a man trapped in a paper mache head. So, and it's by choice in that film. So we'll see what Lenny Emerson brings to Room. It is playing the Toronto Film Festival in September, and then it's going to open in limited release October 16th and supposedly getting a nationwide release on November 6th. That's Room. Michael, your number two. My number two is, uh, is it, look, it looks a little over the top from the trailers, but, you know, what is this, a trailer judging show? It's, it's, we should just <laughs> it ignore it. Uh, Trum- should be its own podcast. <laughs> it's uh, Trumbo, the uh, biopic starring Brian Cranston from Breaking Bad as the blacklisted Hollywood screenwriter Dalton Trumbo and really his sort of eventual struggle and triumph to get the hell out from under the HUAC shadow and the Red Menace days and eventually get screen credit. Thanks to Kirk Douglas uh, for the 1960 film, one of my favorites of its type, uh, Spartacus. And it's just wonderful to see Cranston kind of cut loose uh, in the scenes I've, I've seen so far. Just This is the blessing and the curse of an actor, a good actor, who's closely identified with the hit series. I thought of this in a way when you see somebody like Elizabeth Moss in a very different film, Queen of Earth, which we'll be talking about later in the mm-hmm. show. But she had obviously a wonderful run on Mad Men. But these actors tend to... They get to play a wide range of uh, limited emotions. It's it's that kind of paradox with television. You have you have a limited wide range to play. You can only you you have the parameters of your hit show, and that's that's all. The character can only be bent in uh, so far. And to see Cranston kind of really, really kind of doing this high style, very stylized acting, you know, he's 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 a wonderful technical actor. I just think it'll be fun to watch. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, to me, that's half the pleasure of going to the movies, anyways, just sure. to see what an actor can do when they're really able to do a lot more than they've done on the thing we know him for. So we'll yeah. see. Trumbo. What's his name? Therese. Therese Balavant. 
And yours? Carol. The night is like a lovely tune. At number two, I have a film that's already been mentioned. It's Carol, and yeah, it seems like we have been waiting a long time for this one from Todd Haynes, adapting the Patricia Highsmith novel. The cast, you're right, Adam, Rooney Mara, Kate Blanchett, that's the main draw, but I like the idea of Haynes coming back to a feature film, too. I still need to catch up with his uh, miniseries remake of Mildred Pierce. Yeah, I didn't watch that either. At some point, I, I will love the get Curtis to that. Film, so. It's been a while since he's had a feature film, though. It's 2007's Excellent I'm Not There was before Mildred Pierce. So, Carol, finally, November 20. There you go. My number two is not a remake of the Ridley Scott Tom Cruise fantasy from 1985. Sorry, everyone. But it is called Legend. And it is appropriately my number two pick since it features one of our greatest living actors on screen today, Tom Hardy, playing two roles. He's playing Reggie and Ronald Cray. And I actually know a little bit about the Crays only because I took in college a British film and Thatcherism class. And there was a 1990 film called The Craze that looked back on the reign in the East End of London of these gangsters, these twin brothers, Reggie and Ronald. And uh, that dynamic between them is really twisted in a Dead Ringers, Cronenberg sort of way. (laughs) And we'll see how much fun Tom Hardy has playing those two roles. I saw one synopsis that described the movie basically as focusing on Reggie, and it's really about him trying to control his psychotic brother in Ronald. So I think Hardy will probably do a little bit better job than Gary and Martin Kemp did, who were probably best known, definitely best known as the two lead members of Spandau Ballet. They played the craze (laughs) in that film. And they're good. Don't get me wrong. I'm getting an easy jab at that 1980s band in here. But Tom Hardy is Tom Hardy. Brian Helgeland is the director. I haven't actually seen any of his work as a director. 42, Payback, A Knight's Tale. Didn't watch him. But as a screenwriter, he's best known for L.A. Confidential and Mystic River, among many others. I think he's got a pretty good handle on the crime drama. But at the end of the day, it's just going to be watching the virtuoso Tom Hardy play two dramatically different roles on screen at the same time. I hope he's I can't wait in a car with himself the whole time. I'm sure he will be be. awesome. I'm sure he will be. Will his father be in the backseat at any point? Please. I hope so. (laughs) Only metaphorically. A little little inside lock talk here (laughs) on (laughs) on film spotting. That movie is supposed to come out October 2nd. Hopefully it will be a wide release. Michael, that brings us to our number one most anticipated fall movie. What are you that excited about? My number one really isn't, you know, kind of going to make the impact of a James Bond film or a Star Wars picture that doesn't open until December, whatever. It's, but it's my number one is the Robert Zemeckis film called The Walk. Now, one of my favorite documentaries the last few years was Man on Wire, James Marsh's look at the amazing feat of of high wire uh, nerve and uh, and illegality, of course, that Philippe Petit did when he spanned the two World Trade Towers and amazed the world for this brief moment and uh, by crossing them. And Joseph Gordon-Levitt is going to play this character in a fictionalized version of a film that uh, uh, I, lo- I, I really adore Man on Wire, but something tells me, I hope, that Zemeckis is enough of a, not just a good technical filmmaker so that he'll find a way to kind of amaze us and convince us that we are there above the streets of Manhattan walking with him between these two towers. But I guess because I, I had such a good, strong reaction to Zemeckis' film Flight, which required a certain amount of technical 
prowess just to kind of create that uh, unnerving first half hour for us. But it's also focused on character. That's what I hope here. And I, I don't know. I'm really I'm very intrigued by this bizarre little kind of like quirk of history, recent history. I uh, I, I, I really have hopes for it. So we'll yeah. see. I have a question regarding the walk that uh, we'll get to in the second half of the show. Mm. At number one, though, I've already said what my vote was in our poll, and that's what I've got here, Crimson Peak. It's Guillermo del Toro at really doing what I think he's done best. I didn't find Pacific Rim to be the right fit for him. It was just too much traditional blockbusterism. But this has some of the horror-steeped oddity of things like Kronos, The Devil's Backbone, and his great Pan's Labyrinth. Ghosts are real. That much I know. I've seen them all my life. The story here basically looks like a haunted house picture. That's enough to hook me. (laughs) And the cast just heightens my excitement. Tom Hiddleston, Jessica Chastain, Mia Vasakovska, and for real Del Toro geeks, also includes Doug Jones, who played Pale Man in Pan's Labyrinth. I don't know what he's going to be doing here. It'll probably be pretty weird. Now, I know you weren't impressed by the trailer, Adam, and I'll admit it, it made Crimson Peak look pretty routine, yeah, fairly conventional. I'm hoping that it just wasn't paced in a way that allowed me to sort of luxuriate in the use of imagery that Del sure. Toro often includes in his films. So not too long until that comes out, October 16. Yeah, I was definitely more excited about that film before I saw the trailer, but I do love the cast and I'll give Del Toro the benefit of the doubt. For my number one, I am going to live up to the moniker Art House Adam. And I'm all about the high concepts apparently here on this show because... I can't wait to watch an Iranian man drive around in a taxi talking to other people for 90 minutes or so. The film is Taxi, not to be confused with the Jimmy Fallon Queen Latifah joint that I'm sure Michael <laughs> gave four stars to when he reviewed it for the trip. Panahi's not remaking that? No, no, he isn't. Hollywood hasn't come to that yet, huh? This is Jafar Panahi, who we did an Iranian marathon here on film spotting contemporary Iranian cinema and Panahi was one of the real standouts for me this is not a film is a movie it came out I think 2012 here in the states in limited release that got a rave review here yeah, on the film. show great really film. good and and again the high concepts I mean this is a filmmaker who has been banned and still is under this ban in Iran uh, from making films and yet he went out and made this movie that he called this is not a film where it does kind of test the boundaries of that what what really constitutes a piece of cinema. And it turns out that that film was pretty magical in its own little way. And I think he's a director here who's following that same model. He maybe can't go out there and and produce a script the way someone in Hollywood or in other countries do. He has to work a little bit more on the sly and try to get these productions done somehow without people noticing. And so he makes this film where he's the main character and He's not in his house stuck there trying to recreate scenes or whatever or interacting with a few people like his lawyer on the phone. But here he's actually interacting with Iranian people. Now, how many of them are sort of staged and people from his own life? How many people are people who genuinely got in a cab and are just along for the ride? That's kind of the magic of Iranian cinema sometimes. And thinking of the films of Kiristami, which often involve cars as well and characters in them going on these these journeys, literal and, and metaphoric, they play with reality and fantasy. And so I really want to see what Panahi does with this film. It won the main prize at the Berlin Film Festival 
as I understand it, Michael. Oh, okay, and okay. Darren Aronofsky, who was the jury head, said, instead of allowing his spirit to be crushed and giving up, instead of allowing himself to be filled with anger and frustration, Panahi created a love letter to cinema. His film is filled with love for his art, his community, his country, and his audience. Hmm. It's going to play the Toronto Film Festival, then hit New York City. It's supposed to open. It's not just a festival movie, but it's supposed to open in New York City on October 2nd. I'm hoping it does make its way. Yeah, well, we'll see before the end of the year, probably. Yeah, Yeah, eventually. So Taxi from Javar Panahi is my number one. Here's where we normally open it up for honorable mentions, but I think we've got a whole other segment here devoted to a fall movie preview, so I'm sure we'll get some other titles in at that point. If you have any feedback for us, though, you want to share your top five most anticipated movies or just your number one most anticipated movie of the fall, email us, feedback at filmspotting.net. And if you're feeling ripped off because we didn't start the show with a review, good news. We'll share some quick thoughts on a few recent releases next. Plus, a massacre theater scene that we haven't even chosen yet. Stay with us. I love the delay. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, it's beautiful. <laughs> I'm on an somebody's I'm on an someone to hold me down. I'm on an someone to care. I'm on a ride and shake my body. I start cooling out my hair. I'm on a cover myself with the ashes of you, and nobody is gonna give a damn. Son of a bitch, give me a drink. Hey folks, just a quick interruption here to introduce the debut of White Man's Problems by Kevin Morris. A series of nine poignant vignettes of modern life in nouveau riche LA and the working class East Coast are brought to life and narrated by Hollywood star performances. The audiobook features a star-studded cast with performances by Trey Parker, Matt Stone, John McGinley, Josh Holloway, Pete Yorn, Minnie Driver, Sarah Pauly, and the author Kevin Morris. Matthew McConaughey's performance of Summer Farmer, one of the book's nine stories, will be offered as a free download through September 30. Get it at audible.com slash summerfarmer now. Son of a bitch! Nancy, there's something wrong with you. You're imagining things. Nightmare on Elm Street. Do you believe in the boogeyman? No. Whatever you do, don't fall asleep. R.I.P. Wes Craven, thanks to you, many of us had a very hard time falling asleep. That is, if we were brave enough to watch your films in the first place. Welcome back to Film Spotting. There was sad news this weekend as the famed horror director Wes Craven died at the age of 76. That was on Sunday. And I joke there, but it is true. I've never even seen 
any of the Nightmare on Elm Street movies in their entirety just because I was one of those kids who I'd see it late at night, I'd watch a little bit of it, and then I'd, I'd realize that I had to stop watching or I'd be running up to sleep with my parents. And that just didn't seem appropriate at that age. You always give age. me grief for missing out on these seminal 80s I know. movies. Yeah, if it was and horror, I missed out. I'm watching Nightmare on Elm Street and you're watching, what's that wrestling movie? That's so Vision great. Quest? Vision, Vision Quest? Quest. I mean, come on. Don't I think, scoff. I think sure. I will. Don't scoff, Michael. Right. Among Craven's films that he's notable for, The Last House on the Left, 1972, The Hills Have Eyes in 77, Nightmare on Elm Street, of course, in 84, Scream in 1996, which I don't think I watched finally until it was out on DVD in 2002 or something, mm. and then Red Eye in 2005, a film not oh, I, really I like a that horror film. movie oh, yeah, I like that, that I liked a lot. We yeah. reviewed it here on the show, and I really enjoyed Red Eye. Rachel McAdams, I believe, one of the stars of that film. So I can't speak much to the breadth of Wes Craven's work, but Michael, I know you wrote about it in the Tribune. What are some of your thoughts on the passing of Craven? It's, it, it's not. A, it, I think, like like you, Adam, horror isn't my number one genre. It, it wasn't when I was younger, and it isn't necessarily now. Although one of the real pleasures of the job, I guess, is as the years go by, you you start to realize well, if you can find the filmmakers who work a certain genre that speak directly to you and. Maybe they make the kind of movie that other people just don't have the the touch for, you know, the, for for your taste. I mean, you look at something like the first Nightmare on Elm Street back in '84, and what Craven did with that. It doesn't all hold up equally well, but the best 30, 40 minutes of that, where you're you're for the first time in that franchise, investigating this idea of what happens if the boogeyman is actually in your dream psyche and can kill you, you know, because that's how terrifying he is. Craven had a, a real mastery of taking that very simple situation, spinning all these variations on it, and scaring the hell out of you. And sometimes it was with you know, pure gore and viscera and a tremendous amount of blood, and because it's a very bloody film. But it doesn't seem relentless and numbing and sadistic in the way it uses the gore. And that's Craven at his best, even even in, the, in that film. That's why it worked. And that was not the kind of film I liked at age 23 when that came out. But, uh, my God, I thought, this is a real director, you know. <laughs> and then I went and saw the other stuff. And, yeah, I mean, he, he three times he he really did make an enormous impact on the horror genre. With The Last House on the Left, which is a very tough sit and excruciating, and I'm still not sure uh, where I stand on it because it was, it was hard enough to get through that thing once. But... You know that rape revenge story had had a the kind of grungy impact, and it came at a time when, like um, Night of the Living Dead four years earlier, it just seemed more visceral and closer to the ground, and and truly meaner in a lot of ways that weren't all just for kicks. I mean, that movie is not a good time in any sense, but it it had an impact of some kind, and I'm still kind of wrestling with what that impact was, but. Uh, when you look at Nightmare on Elm Street and then Scream. Scream in the 90s, just at the time when we needed, somebody needed to just sort of essentially dissect, mock, and kind of heckle this horror genre and all the cliches and tropes. And turned out Craven did a wonderful job with the script he did not write. Kevin Williamson wrote it, but he had real wit. And I love movies like, I mean, you know, I don't, I don't even have any guilt about the pleasure of it. I, I like a movie like Swamp Thing a lot. There's There's a sweetness and a buoyancy to that kind of lower budget comic book adaptation that, uh, you know, I wish some of these things I've seen lately out of the Marvel universe had, had anything like the kind of the spark or personality that, 
a real kind of toss-off in a way without any pretensions at all, something like Craven Swamp Thing hit. And I love, as you did, uh, Red Eye, mm-hmm. which is a very, very, very unexpected kind of atypical film for Craven. So you add it all up, it's a pretty damn interesting career. And it's, it is sad that uh, he went out when he had plenty of projects, Irons in the Fire, and you know, all, keeping, <laughs> keeping various uh, aspects of his franchises going. But uh, he was a thoughtful man. If you ever listen to a DVD commentary of Craven talking about one of his films, and I do remember listening to his what he had to say about Last House on the Left. Not a sloppy thinker, you know, a very interesting, thorough, serious filmmaker. And you can like his stuff or not, but uh, he was he was somebody to contend with. And it wasn't just that he survived over all those different phases of his career and was able to find work. I mean, the guy made, I think, a genuine masterpiece in A Nightmare on Elm Street, the first one. (laughs) Yeah, you love it. I I absolutely love it. And it stands so far apart from that era, the other schlock. Oh, Friday the 13th. Give me a break. You know, it it could have fallen in line with that trend, but it instead. Instead, it staked out its own claim as a work of surrealism, really. I mean, the imagery in that thing it is. is unreal beyond just shock gore. There is gore, but it's so purposeful. And the way he melds what reality we're in at any given time, whether we're in the dream or we're not in the dream. And eventually, as the movie goes on, those two begin to come together in a way that you're not quite sure. And it actually develops some meta elements that would be found later in Scream. So it makes me think, you know, Williamson is the scriptwriter of the Scream franchise, probably the auteur of that series. And when he left, I think it was on the third one, it dipped down a little bit because I think he's the main voice, but it also shows how Craven was the perfect fit for that because Mm. not only did he have that sensibility for really thinking carefully and smartly about the genre, which is what Scream did, you already saw hints of that, in A Nightmare on Elm Street, playing with these earlier, weaker films like Friday the 13th and doing them one better. But what a stroke of genius to get a horror guy to direct this spoof somewhat faithfully. So the Scream films are scary. I mean, they're not just jokes. You know, they operate on that level, too, because he brings that level of craft to it. So, so yeah, amazing career and one masterpiece. How many directors can say that? So Right. Absolutely. Well, it's never been more appropriate to transition into a segment called Massacre Theater than after talking about <laughs> Wes Craven. We perform a scene badly and you get a chance at winning a prize. Last time, we massacred this. What are you looking at? I heard you inside. What? The consulate. I heard you talking. I thought maybe we could help each other. How's that? You need money. I need a ride. Out of here. I'm not running a car service just now. Thank you. I'll give you $10,000 to drive me to Paris. What is this, a joke? Some kind of scam? No, it's no scam. And I'll give you another 10 when we get there. That's Matt Damon as Jason Bourne and Franca Potenta as Marie in 2002's The Bourne Identity. It was written by W. Blake Heron and Tony Gilroy, directed by Doug Lyman. I wish you could have seen Josh's shoulders bounce just now as he said, Franca Potenta. <laughs> it really was. <laughs> you got to put a your bit whole of theater body into the accents here. <laughs> a couple weeks back, Josh and I revisited our top five haunted past movies, along with a review of The Look of Silence, the latest film from Joshua Oppenheimer. I guess you could call it a sequel or maybe better yet, a companion to his film, The Act of Killing. It was a much praised documentary from a few years ago, won the coveted film spotting Golden Brick Award, Haunted Past, The Clear Tie-In with 
the Bourne franchise and that movie specifically, but we also had some spy talk in that episode as we shared a little bit of love for the latest Mission Impossible installment. One listener, though, found another connection, as they always do. Alex Lovendahl from Madison, Wisconsin, wrote in and said, apart from the spy's connection between Mission Impossible and the Bourne series and the highly selected yet almost always betrayed IMF and Treadstone, the two series also share celebrity house flipper and Avenger Jeremy Renner. We also heard from Marius Viba from the Lillehammer area in Norway. I think I might have a few relatives out that way, Probably. Maria says, I also found another connection between the Bourne and the Mission Impossible series. The first installment is easily the strongest of the series. Yeah, I might get in trouble over that one. You're going to get in trouble with me, Maria. I mean, I love hearing from (laughs) listeners in Norway, but you're just dead wrong. You're not wrong about Bourne. You are dead wrong about Mission Impossible. Adam Adam gets up in Norway's grill. (laughs) (laughs) I'm Dutch. Come on. I'm sure there's some antagonism somewhere along the way. We also heard from Scott Gluck in Pasadena, longtime listener, future tie-in, Born Identity star Matt Damon also starring in the upcoming October opening of The Martian. We talked about that previously. Is he now being typecast as the guy abandoned on foreign planets? Which script did he read first, do you think? I mean, which is the one where he thought, I'm going to do this again. (laughs) Well, most of the comments we got, we're only going to share a few of them here quickly. In response to Massacre Theater, weren't about the movies or the connection, but about our performances or our attempt at performances. And I think it's really telling here as we get into the actual emails that they couldn't really identify what language we were completely massacring. So we were at least trilingual. Yeah. Yeah. Patrick in Gainesville, Florida says, very well done, gentlemen. To my ignorant English-speaking ears, I thought your Russian sounded spot on. That is, if it was in fact Russian. Nathan Bertram in Regina, Saskatchewan, Canada. I don't know what accent Josh was going for, but I was impressed at his ability to combine so many different ones without once actually sounding German. (laughs) And then, Michael, we heard from Balaj Sandor in Hungary. He says, I only speak German on a basic level, so it's not an expert's opinion. But after I realized these were actually German sentences, I think you just used the Schweizerdeutsch dialect. (laughs) That's that's what we were going for. Yeah, but the Schweizerdeutsch that they speak in Russia. (laughs) Of course. Finally, Andrew Johnson, Houston, Texas, formerly of Tempe, Arizona, says, Adam, oh, Adam, Damon was not channeled for this performance. No urgency in the voice. No worry for the impending arrest. Maybe next time have Sam threaten you off screen so you can really get into the part. Man, you were riding so high after your Woody Allen performance yeah, the a few weeks back. installment. How quickly they turn. But some people caught on to the fact that I wasn't really doing Matt Damon as Jason Bourne. I was doing whoever does Matt Damon from Team America World Police. <laughs> Even That's better. really what I was <laughs> going better. for. And, and some people got it. And I appreciate every one of you. Josh, reach into the film spotting hat. It's fairly brimming. A lot of people love the Bourne identity. Pick out this week's winner. That would be Ryan Irvin from Richmond, Virginia. Congratulations, Ryan. Email feedback at filmspotting.com. To claim your very own film spotting t shirt. What happened to the canola line? You're supposed to say forget about it, Sanchez. The old man likes his canola. Look, I made a mistake, all right? It didn't make any difference anyway. Hey, I'm letting it go. But don't say it doesn't matter. Every line matters. We move on now to this week's edition of Massacre Theater, a scene and a movie that I don't know anyone's going to get from the dialogue, though it does tie in directly to a film. That came up fairly prominently. I'll give you that hint in our previous segment, our top five most anticipated fall movies. Now, if Josh does his job right, you'll be able to get it immediately. Okay. Give me a minute to stuff this cotton in my mouth. (laughs) It's not The Godfather, everyone. We're going to tell you right now he is not doing Brando. I'm going to start it off. Josh, you're going to give me the action. And action. Wine, sir. Mouton Rothschild, 55. May we begin... Please do. 
a happy selection, if I may say. I'll be the judge of that. That's rather potent. Not the cork, your aftershave. Strong enough to bury anything. But the wine is quite excellent. Although for such a grand meal, I'd rather expect a claret. Of course. Unfortunately, our cellar is poorly stocked with clarets. Mouton Rothschild is a claret. And I've smelt that aftershave before. And both times, I've smelt a rat. <laughs> and seen. <laughs> I, think, I think on Mouton. The last Mouton, you nailed it. Hey. One word. One word is all I need. That's all you got to do. It's funny. I don't know what Schmelterat means in Schweizerdeutsch, but, uh, but we'll, we'll have to look that up. We'll hear from some of our listeners in Germany. If you know or what Russia. scene. Or Russia, indeed. We just massacred. Please email us with the movie's title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. Your deadline is Monday, September 13th. Winner will be selected randomly from all the correct entries and announced on the show in a couple of weeks. To get official Massacre Theater rules, visit filmspotting.net. It drives me crazy that places like this are so close to the city. Places like this? Yeah, you know, where tranquility isn't just a myth. Thanks for the exile. That's what this place is here for. From Alex Ross Perry, the acclaimed writer-director of Listen Up, Philip and The Color Wheel, comes an exploration of broken women, queen of Earth. A bit of the trailer there for, as you heard, Queen of Earth, the latest from director and writer Alex Ross Perry. This one did kind of sneak up on us, Josh. Showed up on VOD last weekend, and it opens here in Chicago. This weekend, it stars Elizabeth Moss, Michael, you mentioned previously, and Catherine Waterston. And it is the movie we're planning to discuss on next week's show. As of right now, Josh, you have not seen it. I have not. In fact, you haven't seen any movie we're going to talk about. We I'm are gonna the only get... one in the room who hasn't seen... Any of these. Anything recently. So, so can I leave? You've still been reading Infinite Jest, and it's just really ruining your movie watching. 80 pages left. <laughs> really? Impressive. Wow. I'm going to do it. Well, we aren't doing a main review this week, so we thought we could at least give you a little new release roundup, and Queen of Earth is going to kick us off here because, Michael, we have seen it, and even though I'm going to hold off on commenting until next week when Josh and I will discuss it, that is if he has seen it by then, I want to get your thoughts. Maybe you can help set up our conversation a little bit. This is a movie that is cynically or respectfully and not inaccurately being referred to as Alex Ross Perry's persona. Alex Ross Perry, formerly of The Color Wheel and recently Listen Up Philip. It does star Moss and Waterston as friends, very close friends who spend a few weeks together as Elizabeth Moss's character is overcoming a tragedy, a loss in her life, and also a relationship ending. This is a movie I understand you are a big fan of. I'm, I'm a fan. I'm a huge fan of Perry in general. I don't I don't think this film is quite up to the level of The Color Wheel and Listen Up, Philip, but I consider those two of the most interesting and darkest comedies I've seen in a decade. I mean, I, mean, I, lo- I really love that guy's stuff. And this film is, I, I think, as you, as people have talked about, it's he's he's even mentioned in interviews. He came out of a a, a Fassbender retrospective uh, in New York and said, "I want to make a movie like you know, The Marriage of Mir Braun or something like that. Something, some sort of you know, really intense psychological thriller, kind of a paranoia thriller dealing with at least one female character falling apart. And you know, can you get some sort of interesting tension going if you have, in this case, a relationship, a friendship?" between the Moss character and the Waterston character basically turn into kind of a power struggle and a a series of power plays about who's really looking out for whose best interests in this relationship. And what's great, I think, just structurally about the script is it's a very simple 
idea and that you're you're you have the present day situation with Moss's character slowly disintegrating in in I think really interesting, bracing and unpredictable ways yeah. and often very funny ways in sort of a sick way. But you're also intercut that with everything that happened a year earlier when a slightly different cast of characters was up at the same country home somewhere in the Hudson River Valley outside New York City. So it's just got a nice, unpredictable rhythm to it. It's shot on beautiful 16-millimeter film for anybody who cares about that. It's just got a much warmer, kind of hazier, more evocative feeling visually than, than so many other indies care to have. And interesting for me, Adam, to see uh, uh, Chicago's own best-known filmmaker, Joe Swanberg, show up as a uh, producer yes. on this film, Queen of Earth, because, you know, I'm still struggling with exactly what I find limiting and limited about a lot of Swanberg's work. And I don't have those same reservations or objections to almost anything Perry does. I just, Mm -hmm. he simply has a sensibility and he has something to say about relationships in bracing and unpredictable ways, as I said, that I, with, with Swanberg, I just feel like in the end, you're kind of stuck with some pretty routine and hackneyed observations about men, women, relationships, and blah, 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 blah. Yeah. And that's, it's all just kind of generica. I don't feel that way with Perry. I feel like they're very specific films. We'll get to a little bit more on Swanberg here in just a moment, but I'm going to ask you one more question about Queen of Earth because it may further influence our conversation next week here on the show, Josh, and that is about the humor. You I'm not trying to influence. I'm trying to prevent it. Yeah, I'm trying well. to prevent that. I'm just, this is the only one you need to hear. You, know? you might be right, okay. actually. But you mentioned the word funny. Funny. And one of the things I'll say, regardless of how much I liked or didn't like the film, that I'm still wrestling with is how much of the humor that's there is that sort of very darkly comic absurdity that isn't necessarily the type of absurdity you actually laugh at. Hmm versus the type of humor you are intended to laugh at. How much of this do you think is intended to be a comedy versus just a really tense, bizarre film where characters do some really hurtful things, and in doing the hurtful things they do, that occasionally provokes a sort of uncomfortable laughter? Uh, less so less so than the previous two films. I think The Color Wheel and Listen Up, Philip in particular, those are full-on black comedies. This is more of a, I would call it a kind of a sly psychological thriller. I think you can tick off all the references, and he's he's happy to help you. I think he's talked about you know, Bergman's persona for sure. He's talked a lot about uh, Roman Polanski in films like Repulsion. I mm-hmm. think there's even a, there's a, there's one sequence that's shot very much like a couple of scenes in Rosemary's Baby. And that's where it's moments like that where you think, okay, well, you're just, now you're just sort of exploring at our expense in a way. And uh, you're just trying on a new stylistic attack right here because it'd be fun to see if you could pull it off. It's it, they, This film does not feel completely as organic, I think, as something like Listen Up, Philip. But you know, um, again, you can, you can tell a lot of people that listen to Philip is a really funny, nasty, abrasive black comedy, and maybe they'll like it. But there's something the, talk about a film with high negatives. This is a filmmaker who yeah. <laughs> may be destined never to appeal to more than fourteen percent of any given group in the world. Okay, <laughs> um, and that probably includes his own family. So, uh, and I don't know if Queen of Earth is going to change that. One thing I will say though is that Elizabeth Moss's range and just this formidable kind of a ferocity and one really carefully judged though uh, she is a, an actress i wouldn't have even predicted could do this sort of thing a couple of three years ago but you know i was mm-hmm. wrong she wasn't if you're listening to this prior to saturday 
director, Alex Ross Perry, and his producer, Joe Swanberg, are going to appear live at the Music Box Theater here in Chicago. That's Saturday, September 5th. The showtimes are TBD, but they're going to talk about the film so you can watch it. And I'm guessing there'll be a little bit of an intro and Q&A if you're curious about Queen of Earth. I said there'd be a little bit more Joe Swanberg talk ahead. Michael, we have both seen Digging for Fire, uh, another movie that recently played here in Chicago at the Music Box and is available on video on demand. That's how I saw the film. We're going to keep the shorthand going here. As some I've seen on Twitter have suggested, this is Joe Swanberg's voyage to Italy, essentially, where you have this, <laughs> okay, okay. this marriage. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> this marriage uh, in a state of of disillusionment, if that's the right word. Jake Johnson, the husband, Rosemary DeWitt, the wife, they are the parents of a small child, I believe about three years old, Joe Swanberg's kid, who you can tell if you've ever seen a picture of Joe Swanberg, you see the kid in the movie and you instantly know he's and the a kid's mini great. The Joe kid's, Swanberg. Yeah, the kid is fantastic. And he's really good. It also has this all-star cast of almost cameos where you get Anna Kendrick, Sam Rockwell, Brie Larson, Orlando Bloom, among many others. And the, the plot here is they're away. It's similar to Queen of Earth in some ways where they go on holiday. They decide to go get away from their lives for a while by going out and staying at a friend's house in this very nature-y type of environment. And they discover some bones out in the backyard. And Rosemary DeWitt says, don't investigate. Don't go exploring. You don't really want to know what's under there. Jake Johnson can't help himself. And they kind of split and go off in different directions. Now, Michael, you reviewed this film. And even though you're right here and we could just listen to you rather than hear me read you, I'm going to read you anyway. You say Great. Digging for Fire uses this treasure hunt as a story hook as its characters shoot the bull on the subjects of public versus private education and the frustrations of married life. The semi-improvised banter isn't bad or good. It's simply there. And too much of it plays like outtakes for better, sharper versions of the same exchanges. And we're in total agreement on this film. And I really like some of Swanberg's recent stuff, including Drinking Buddies, of course, shot here in Chicago. But there is no revelation in this movie whatsoever, or too much easy revelation when you finally need it and when the movie needs to provide some closure at the end. But there's no surprises within any of these exchanges here's my th- or in the culmination All right, Here's of my thing. I generally resist on any scale and in any style, I generally resist filmmakers who who have at least a hand in their own scripts, uh, where where you're getting things tied up too neatly, or you know you're getting thesis points all night, and and you're just getting morals and lectures, and you know and, instead of actual human speech, you know or dialogue, or you know there's no sidewinding quality at all. I'm still puzzling through why Swanberg's work too often seems. Just wanting to me, mm-hmm. it's just it's this. I I don't know what if he's got anything compelling to say about about the way we live or relate to each other. I I maybe I've 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 seen uh, you know two thirds of his work, and he's God knows he's made a lot of movies. Maybe I just haven't seen the right third. Um, but I think there's also something kind of simple with him where. I just think there's so little energy in the filmmaking, deliberately. You know, I mean, he's mm-hmm. not trying to dazzle anybody with technique or even momentum. <laughs> you know, uh, it, they're just uh, we're going to kind of just get these increasingly good ensembles together, yeah. and and w- in a semi-improvised way, you know, you got a loose kind of outline, and then you sort of you know see how the scenes turn out, and maybe this take works, and you know, it, it furthers the situation and the story along well enough to kind of say, good, that's good. I, I, I don't know, I. Temperamentally, I just when a Noam Baumbach film comes out and something like Mistress America, where a film that is written to within an inch of its life, it's an entirely different experience. But I just think there's more to respond to that. I, you know, one yeah. of these days I'm going to see a Joe Swanberg film 
that said, oh, okay, now I get it. Now I get it. It just took 15 movies of, of you know for me to figure out what he's really good at. But you know, for now, I say um, again, for better or for worse, I've just seen a couple of films by his filmmaker wife, Chris Weinberg. Uh, most recently, this film called Unexpected with um, Colby Smulders, and she's already like five leagues ahead. Wow! Yeah. yeah. Well, it I, is I, I don't want to break up the marriage. You no, know, no, I, of I, I hope it's a solid one. I think we're not home wreckers here no, on no, Fox Spot. No, no, come no, on, by let's any go. means. But it is a movie I'm with you digging for fire. That's either all too neat or it's too messy. Like they did just invite a bunch of actors together on a lark and said, come goof around for a little while. And it's not really compelling stuff, unfortunately. What is compelling stuff? Two more movies here that I'm going to mention. One of them opening this weekend. It is a film that was the audience award winner at the recent Sundance Film Festival. It's called Meru. And I am not into climbing. I don't know anything about that outdoor stuff. And I was pretty riveted by this documentary. It is about these three men who tried in 2011, I believe, 2008, actually, originally, to scale this infamous peak, the shark's fin on Mount Meru in India. And just in terms of the the nature of the peak itself, it's it's basically nearly impossible, and nobody has done it. Mm-hmm. And so they were determined to do it. They come very close. This isn't a spoiler. They come very close early in the film, but don't make it. And then the film is about sort of the the effect of that on their lives and the decision to possibly give it another go. It's a classic inspirational man versus nature story. Of course, the stakes are high here. They are life and death, literally. And you've got this kind of quest for immortality in whether or not they're going to be the first to pull off this seemingly impossible feat that, that maybe ultimately could be impossible forever. Maybe nobody will ever pull this off. So it's incredibly suspenseful. There's lots of twists and turns. There's obstacles along the way. But for me, it really becomes a more interesting documentary because it's not man versus nature. It's man versus man. It's this man versus himself. It's all about how far these people are willing to go, what risks they're going to decide are acceptable in this quest. And the stories of those personal obstacles and what they have to overcome, that's what makes this film really compelling for me. One of the climbers, Jimmy Chin, is also the co-director, and he's a first-time feature director. Structurally, the way he juggles the various personal storylines and meshes them with their past as climbers and this present quest, it's just very assured. It feels like it's made by someone who's made maybe 10 of these films mm, like this. Sure. So I, I really can recommend Meru, especially I saw it at home on my TV screen. I'd much rather see it on the big screen in the theater. And the last one I'm going to mention here because mainly I want to get it in for golden brick contention, though we need to have a conversation about whether or not this is a film that qualifies for golden brick contention it is the movie phoenix and to go back to our little fun with shorthand here it's vertigo in post-holocaust germany that's how some people are referring to this film i'll read you one plot description because that's all i want to say about the plot after undergoing reconstructive surgery a concentration camp survivor tries to find out if her husband betrayed her to the nazis so the technicality here is that the filmmaker christian petzold is 55 So it's hard to claim that he's a new or emerging filmmaker, and that's one of our criteria for The Golden Brick. He's made seven feature films and some TV movies, but I'd never heard of Petzold until 2012 in his film Barbara, which I didn't see, but I remember it getting some acclaim that also starred Nina Haas, who's the main character in this film. But I figure he's a brand new name, Josh, to most people listening to this show. So you could perhaps make a case that he's emerging in some ways. It's not fair to compare, but... Michael, going back to Digging for Fire, they're completely different in tone. Everything about them is different. Certainly just the the cinematic skill on display. And you've got such an austere backdrop with Phoenix. But this is the movie about the mysteries of marriage and love that's full of 
nuance and troubling little surprises and provocative moments. And it's very much immersed in this gritty reality of post-war Berlin, but it also has a heightened quality to it. It is, at its core, a melodrama. There are kind of contrived plot elements that you have to go along with a little bit. It didn't but it hurt really Vertigo. Does. No, exactly. That's what I'm saying. It didn't hurt Vertigo, yeah. and it doesn't hurt this film. Yeah, I can't I wait to think, see it. I was, on yeah. va- I was on vacation in Minnesota, like way up north, and uh, I was away for a week, and that was, that's the film that came along when I was away. I, I'm really eager to catch up with it. People Unfortunately, yeah, it's getting great reviews or has gotten great reviews, but right now doesn't seem to be available anywhere unless you're seeing it in a city where it's still on some screens. But it's a film that really does express something fundamental, I think, about our capacity to forgive and forget. That doubles as a metaphor, of course, for Germany's struggle with the same, not only in post-war, but I think you could argue, certainly when you see a film like this being made, it's something that country is still wrestling with and is probably forever going to wrestle with. So, Definitely recommend Phoenix if you have a chance to see it. We may be talking about that movie more here as we get through the year. Josh, you were wonderful on that segment. Take a break. Don't talk <laughs> Are you next guys segment. finally done? I'm glad you brought in the lightsabers, Michael, so <laughs> I had something to do. Yeah, we, we should have we saved the lightsabers for that last, until the last segment. <laughs> Indeed. All right, let's get back to our fall movie preview. We'll share our top five questions about the fall movie season when we return. Stay with us. You all time, 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 you get to know it. Think about a world I found spinning around. Remember all the clothes I wore to hide it from you. Sit and take the long walk home with me. Think all the falling down and the hiding under. Think of all the time, time, time. Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit is a bi-weekly podcast hosted by BuzzFeed's Allison Wilmore and Matt Singer of Screen Crush, focusing on the world of online movies. More information at filmspottingsvu.com or subscribe to the show on iTunes. Hello, listeners of Film Spotting Original Recipe. This is Matt Singer from Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit. In our latest episode, we review the Dardan Brothers Oscar-nominated film, Two Days, One Night, starring Marion Cotillard. And just to really set the mood, I'm giving Allison Wilmore just one weekend to save her job by convincing her co-workers to forego their bonuses. Matt, can I keep my job? No. 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 Can I keep my job? Fine! Yes! We'll also recommend some other films about the working world and office life that you can rent or stream at home right now. To listen to the episode, search for us in iTunes or check us out at filmspottingsvu.com. Hi, this is Todd Haynes, the director of I'm Not There, and you're listening to Film Spotting. Hi, Mom. My parents asked if their grandchildren could visit them for a week. Here we are. This is where our mom grew up. I've wanted to spend time with you for so long. Miss you guys. Mom, we're having a great time. I have not seen your Nana this happy in years. (laughs) Bedtime here is 9.30. It's probably best you two shouldn't come out of your room after that. See you in the morning. Welcome back to Film Spotting with Adam, Josh, and Michael Phillips. We get back into our fall movie preview now with a clip there from the trailer for The Visit, the latest movie from director. Is this right? M. Night Shyamalan? Remind me, Josh, who is this? 
Shyamalan fella. I have vague memories of a handful of very good films, uh, but that's all I got for you. Yeah, it's been a while. I don't talk about the last, what, five, six, seven years has it been? It's been a while since he really worked his magic. The Village in 2004. Some people really liked Signs in 2002. I think for me, that's the last good film he made, Unbreakable before that, and The Sixth Sense in 1999. I don't know really how the buzz has been on The Visit, but the fact that people are at all talking about Shyamalan again and not just as a punchline, even though that's kind of what I'm doing right now, unfortunately, that's Hopefully a good thing. Maybe we'll see something in the visit, though. There are parts of the trailer that immediately bring me back to some of the most awkward scenes in The Happening, which was one of the worst films of a few years ago. But maybe he's found a way to not have it go off the rails into just pure ridiculousness the way that movie did. So that's The Visit. Didn't make our list here earlier in the show of our top five most anticipated fall movies. But as we transition now into part two of our fall preview, we're sharing the five questions we have surrounding this upcoming movie season and whether or not Shyamalan can direct a good movie again. That is our joint number five here, right, Josh? I'd love to see it. I mean, and and this is similar material. It's about a couple of kids who are going to stay with their creepy grandparents. So, you know, it's, it's not a hired gun project, which he's done the last couple of films he's done. And, you know, I was on the Shyamalan bandwagon, actually, through Lady in the Water. I thought that was interesting. So I hung on longer than most. So we may have just lost (laughs) Michael for the rest of the Uh show. He's shut off his mic. (laughs) I feel like I did mic drop. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, we hope you'll recover. But the visit, yeah. Can he do it? I'm curious, skeptical, hopeful. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Michael, your number five question of the season? Uh, my number five question really is about uh, Steve Jobs. This this biopic coming up uh, with uh, your your man, Michael Fassbender, uh, and Aaron Sorkin's capacious dialogue, I hear, and Danny Boyle's direction. I mean, my question is, when you combine Aaron Sorkin with Danny Boyle, is uh, is it just going to simply drive you crazy? Because <laughs> because when you think of the contrast that Sorkin's dialogue in something like The Social Network received from every other aspect of that film, The Social Network, as directed by David Fincher, you, you had a very interesting stylistic tension between the two things. I wonder uh, if Boyle's kind of hyper-caffeinated visual approach typically mm-hmm. now you know he's, he's got more than one trick up his sleeve but is it simply going to be a visual corollary to that kind of you know rat-a-tat-tat sorkin dialogue again and sorkin has more than one quiver in the bow too so it's not it, this is all guesswork and conjecture but and we're talking about some potentially major artists here but uh, i just wonder if it's going to just seem like ah, yeah. you know give me give me some breathing room fellas you know we'll see We'll see. Mm-hmm. And uh, we'll see about the whole thing. You know, it came in and out of development and, you know, one director was on and then off and a lot of different stars were talked to. Uh, it's interesting how these projects eventually settle into the projects they become, you know. Mm-hmm. And I hope I hope it's good. I well, really do. I think you're going to hear a little bit more about Steve Jobs, the film, as we get through this segment. Michael, we're going to come back to you. Your number four question. Number four, it came up with The Walk, which we talked about earlier. Um, it is my big question with Zemeckis. Zemeckis, Robert Zemeckis, who's directing this story, is a filmmaker who can be seduced, I think, technologically as a filmmaker to the point where he starts losing things like story and character inside whatever technical or visual feat 
he's trying to pull off. Uh, I just, I hope, because I really like the story itself and I really love the documentary Man on Wire, I hope that he can crack this, that he can find a way to really put us up on the wire above Manhattan between the World Trade Towers with this man uh, in a way that doesn't just simply become a visual, a sustained visual feat and nothing more. So yeah, we'll and see. along the lines of those visuals, the two biggest things people are talking about in response to the trailer, we got a lot of this in our poll comments over at filmspotting.net, is the 3D. Is Zemeckis really going to harness this 3D to put us up there on top of the towers looking down and just what effect viscerally that will have on us? But then... It's also getting a lot of criticism for Joseph Gordon-Levitt's attempts at a French, the French. accent, yeah, I know. which yeah. it's just a trailer. So who knows? Maybe it will grow on us over the course of the film. Hey, and Joseph I'm sure Gordon-Levitt, it's better than mine would be. So. Well, that's not saying much. He's a talented, that's my, that's talented actor. That's my bar actor, for actors. So. <laughs> which right. number four? At number four. Did Pixar really need a second movie in 2015? I mean, truly, Inside Out. It was masterful enough for one year, probably two. We usually – Pixar's ramping up the production machine and we're used to getting one every year, every other year, something like that. Two in one year, I don't know. November 25 is when The Good Dinosaur comes out and I just hope that the studio isn't pushing its luck. So you, you take that as a sign that they might just simply be kind of moving moving the development process a little faster than usual. Yeah, and I don't know. I mean I, I just – you know, what are the chances that they're going to hit two – out of the park like that, I guess, is my main concern, you know, in a row. They used to do it, so they did. I, I, I looked possible. to I looked to those great that great streak they had yeah. and, and I don't I didn't quite get it with inside out to the degree you did. But yeah, I, I who knows? I mean this this thing has been in development like all these are for so many years. It just it just may be simply a matter of you know, there's an opening in the in the release calendar that makes sense because it's not up against another family picture. You know, who knows? Who knows? A lot mm-hmm. a lot of factors. My number four question is American remakes of foreign language films. Why? And I'm referencing Secret in Their Eyes Mm. coming out in November. It is a remake of, an American remake of the Argentinian film from 2009 that won the Best Foreign Language Film Oscar, The Secret in Their Eyes. This is written and directed by Billy Ray, who I think did Breach. Didn't he also write and I think direct Shattered Glass? That film from... Now, seven or eight years ago, I think, at this point, Secret in Their Eyes stars Julia Roberts, Nicole Kidman. It's got the great Chiwetel Ejiofor in it, and it's about a team of FBI investigators and what happens to them when they discover that one of their own daughters has been murdered. I think back to the 2009 film from Argentina, it has a jaw-dropping long take in it. It really is just amazing, and it's a good thriller. It's a oh, really it's better good than thriller. good. It's yeah, it's a really good, good thriller. Yeah, You're really right. Good, I'm yeah. with you. I don't think it made my top 10 of the year, but it's a really good thriller. And this question that I pose sort of tongue-in-cheek, it just makes me think about covers of great songs, you know, where you wonder what's the impetus? What really is the motivation? And is there any real creative motivation for it? What can these artists, and I'm referring to Billy Ray, and I'm referring to Julia Roberts, Nicole Kidman, Edgy for what can they, in this time, in this place, bring to this story that makes it unique, that justifies this story being retold? Or is it some sort of cash grab? And that probably doesn't seem appropriate, because how many people even remember the Argentine film? And it's not necessarily the type of subject matter that screams box office gold. So right. with that in mind, I still wonder what's driving a production like this, or are they just stealing a really good story? Think of it like funny games, Adam. You love the Hanukkah remake, I do. don't you? So I there do, you but, go. but he did it that himself. It. 
Okay, Josh, that brings us to our number three question of the fall season. Michael, what do you have? Uh, Rock the Casbah. Okay, the Bill Murray uh, teaming with. Uh, You're joking, right? Uh, no, I'm not. Okay. I'm a, my question. Yeah, I'm I'm pulling, pulling, oh yeah, I'm pulling, it's a question. You're not excited. To I'm see not it. excited. My que- I'll dial back. Okay, yeah. my, my I was question. about to pull the lady in the water face. You pulled. All right, all right. We'll see. We'll see. Time will tell. You know, time heals all wounds. You know, it all. <laughs> uh, can Barry Levinson still make a good comedy? You know, I mean, I, I know that question. Bill Murray can anchor a good comedy if he's given the material. You know, Saint Vincent was the last time. He had that opportunity. It was a pretty good comedy. Uh, but I just would like to see the man who made Diner and, you know, films I like but don't love like Diner. I, I just To me, that's his masterwork. And it really is one of the most interesting American films of the 80s. I'd love to see something that that even just was essentially a good commercial comedy starring Bill Murray. That's good enough for me. I, my standards are in the toilet. <laughs> you know, I mean, there, I, I've been I've been disappointed too often, <laughs> and I. But seriously, I would love to see. I, the question is, can Barry Levinson? Yeah, kind of get the mojo back. And you know, I, I I don't really even know much about the script. I've seen the trailer. Again, what do you know from the trailer? I am Richie Lance. It's a real pleasure. Um, time for a crazy story. I was a rock tour manager, and this is what I'm supposed to do. I'm supposed to tour with my act. To Afghanistan? If I had seen that Rock the Casbah trailer before Film Spotty Madness, you would I would left not, Murray I would off, not have voted you? for Bill Murray. Oh yeah, you voted for him a lot. <laughs> so, so that, it's it's rough, but I know. hopefully it's not, hopefully not an indication. All right, my number three: Will By the Sea be as voyeuristically delicious as Madonna and Guy Ritchie swept away? Swept do, you rem- away. do you remember this, Michael? Jolie and Pitt? Is that where you're going? <laughs> That's where I'm going. One of my more questionable reviews when I was with the Neighborville Sun. A three-star approval of Guy Ritchie's remake. You see, that doesn't surprise me. With his then-wife, Madonna, of the 1975 Italian comedy. Now, to be fair, I called it awful but awfully fascinating. I did, though. I genuinely enjoyed it as this loaded Ritchie home movie, this peak, somewhat veiled peak into what must have been their crazy lives. By the Sea, it's giving an intriguing spin on the celebrity couple dynamic because Jolie is directing Pitt here. And wrote it. And wrote it. It's yeah. the story of a married couple drifting apart in 1970s France. So what could possibly go wrong? Even if everything does, you know it's going to be something to watch. Hmm. That comes out November 13th. <laughs> You're listening to Film Spotting. We're sharing our top five questions of the fall movie season. And I'm going to start out here with my number three, philosophical and broad doesn't necessarily apply directly to fall movies, but then I'll bring it back down to earth. And the question is, how do you make a crime movie that doesn't glorify criminals? Or why should I care about Black Mass, which is a film that you guys both had in your top five most anticipated movies list. And this is the film, Michael, as you touched on, Whitey Bulger, the notorious organized crime boss who ruled the Boston Irish mob for decades, basically the Frank Costello character that Nicholson was playing in The Departed was based off of Whitey Bulger. And I know a little bit about him because I watched last year, I think it was, the Joe Berlinger documentary, Whitey, which was a solid documentary, and it focused mainly on his 2013 trial for 32 counts of racketeering, money laundering, extortion, and his complicity in 19 murders. So keeping that all in mind, I then see these trailers with Johnny Depp 
and those snake-like contact lenses he's wearing and that sly, evil grin. And he's imparting these tough lessons about life on the street. You talked about Depp as seeming so dynamic and engaged, and I agree. That's all there. And I watch that, and I know the story, so I immediately recognize the storytelling potential inherent in a movie about a notorious figure like Whitey Bulger. But then I find myself thinking about all the pain and suffering he caused. Once you actually are aware of his victims, who they were, and his victims, who they still are, and the suffering they're still experiencing, it makes me a little bit queasy to think about how cool he's inevitably going to look on screen. And he will be cool because just like how every war movie is ultimately a pro-war movie, every crime movie is a pro-crime movie. And when you've got a dynamic, engaged performer like Depp in the lead role, it's immediately going to, in a way, even if it's not trying to, glorify Whitey Bulger. And I want to be clear, I don't think that Johnny Depp or the director Scott Cooper are doing anything wrong morally or ethically. And I could come well, up with well, we'll probably, we'll I could, see, maybe, right? they, maybe they will, yeah, you're right. But I could come up with hundreds of movies if we sat down and jotted them down that provoked the same dilemma. So I don't want to sound as if Black Mass yeah, you, is doing something You want something to bring back the Hayes Code, new. No, I don't. <laughs> but I am saying I can't get excited to see Black Mass. I know what you mean, though. This is a good point, because I, I, I think sometimes it's a matter of age or how many crime movies you've seen. You look back to something like Depp in the not very satisfying Public Enemies, where he played Dillinger in Michael Mann's film, mm-hmm. and there's nothing in that in the way that depiction of Dillinger works that makes him seem anything less than kind of a dashing, romantic, essentially good-hearted guy. <laughs> you know, True. ruthless when he needs to be, but not really a killer. And, you know, da 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 and, and in the end, you got nothing. You got nothing to take home with you and really provoke you into thinking, you know, there's nothing disturbing at all in no. that film. And if there's nothing disturbing in that kind of film, you know, the, so we'll see about Black Yeah, Mass, it's, a, it's a matter of nuance. Uh, yeah. how, how many levels and shades are they going to play? And, and I think that's the big question maybe for a director like Scott Cooper, who I think in Out of the Furnace, though we were mixed on it, did play with those he multiple did. sides of that's the characters. True. That's true. So hopefully it'll be in Black Mass as well. Michael, you're number two. Uh, I hate to uh, piggyback on my, my choices for the top five I'm looking forward to, uh, but uh, my question for Trumbo, even though I'm looking forward to it and I, I'm eager to see that uh, I hope that Brian Cranston makes good on what we see in the trailers in this what could be a very rich portrayal of Trumbo, is is this going to be just another self-congratulatory Hollywood triumphs over its lesser instincts movie? You know, mm-hmm. We've seen it with Argo. We've seen it with so many other films. And you know the uh, the triumphalism in the trail, the way the trailer's been put together, is a little galling. I think to me, uh, it just makes it seem like Hollywood was all wrong until it was all right. You know, and that's that. that we'll see. I, I yeah. hope the film has more more shades of gray than that. But uh, that's my question: Can Hollywood ever make a movie that is somewhere in between acidic, despairing satire and Argo type feel goodisms? Hmm. All right, my number two, Adam, is more directly for you. It's will you want to add something from the walk to your tattoo plans? <laughs> this is the Zemeckis film you've talked about. It's coming closer. Michael, and, uh, you know, with this beloved documentary that I'm finally gotten the excuse to catch up with, Man on Wire, that you absolutely love. You still haven't seen it. I still haven't seen it. Oh, I've got it. I'm with you, Michael. It was my number one on Netflix. So, yeah. um, so now is my chance. Um, fair to say... You're skeptical about this. I am. I'm enthused because, as you know from our revisited top fives this summer, where Robert Zemeckis came up a couple of times, big fan of his work. So I think it could work. Now, Adam, when we shared our top five movie-related tattoos, we would get, that was on episode 491, 
Yeah. The image of Philippe Petit. Yeah. This historical figure mm-hmm. was going to be part of your number one tattoo. Yes. I believe at least three other movies were also involved, but I forget the details. <laughs> two. So, Only two. <laughs> so. Uh-huh. Are you going to be able to even go into this with an open mind? Probably not. And it's funny because it was my number two most anticipated movie of the whole year back in January. And now I don't know if it's something about the trailer, something about that accent of Joseph Gordon-Levitt's. I'm just... I'm just not sold on it. I find myself less and less enamored with the concept of it. I just want to go back and watch Man on Wire. I don't know. I'm I'm very skeptical about this film for some reason, but we'll see. Maybe it will end up just adding even more fuel to the tattoo fire, and I'll have to get that Philippe Petit tattoo. It's going to happen at some point, Josh. <laughs> My number two is, will I stop worrying and learn to love the biopic? And I think this is a question that I could direct even more at you, Josh, because over the years, you've been especially hard on biopics. You seem really immune to the formula of them. And I'm also very tough on them, but... Well, there's a reason for that, Adam, because if you actually look in the early scenes of Josh's life, there's, it's, you know, the, the torment <laughs> is explained in a very well-crafted bit of exposition about what... what Those and whole movies. What in is... the third act, it's all solved by one memory. <laughs> You've seen the Larson home movies, Michael. Have, he did not let me see those before I hired him here on the show. But... Even as I'm pretty tough on them, I think myself, the reality is I find a certain comfort in them. I watched a ton of them as a kid. The Buddy Holly story was one of my favorite movies from ages 5 to at least 10. And I used to actually read nonfiction books more than I read fiction books. In grade school and junior high, I loved biographies. That was just the go-to genre for me. So I look at what's coming out this fall. You've got Steve Jobs. I saw the light. Tom Hiddleston playing Hank Williams. That could be really good. It could be. Pawn Sacrifice, the Bobby Fischer movie with Tobey Maguire playing Fischer, which I actually caught this weekend. I got my hands on Pawn Sacrifice, and it's good. I recommend it, including some of the performances in particular. And then Trumbo, as you've touched on about Dalton Trumbo, Michael Legend, I mentioned that film about the Cray Brothers, and The Walk, Philippe Petit. So six movies right there that whether or not they all qualify as biopics, they are about real people. And is this finally going to be the year where we're going to see at least half of them be yeah. really good movies. You know, not just the kind of Oscar fodder that we're used to seeing, because I don't know that this is any different than any other years. Uh, it's probably true that every fall movie season has five to seven or more Except that biopics. Maybe well, a couple year. of those you mentioned are the the kind that I tend to like a little bit better, the limited Smaller time scope. span of yeah. a person's life, you know, that, that I just think does not rely on the beat-by-beat narrative arc that so many of them do that that proved to be so limiting. Yeah, and and Pond Sacrifice, I will say about it right now, walks that line really well because it's about his whole life, Bobby Fischer, and it gives us some of the upbringing and some of the maybe answers to why he became the way he became, but it really is focused mostly on his battle with Boris Spassky in 1972 and those 24 games they played against each other for world chess supremacy. So I think it does get that right. But with those six, and of course with Fassbender playing Jobs, with Sorkin, with Boyle, I'm as intrigued like you guys are. So I think the biopic and seeing how they play out this fall season is something I'm really excited about. That brings us to the number one. The number one question you have about the next three months in movies, Michael? Um, the number one, it's uh, it's really more a matter of artistic collaborations and when they might be nearing the end of their useful lives. Hmm. And I'm, it's, I, it, I'm thinking of that question because of the Spielberg film Bridge of Spies, 
working with so many of his usual collaborators, uh, uh, primarily the cinematographer Janusz Kaminski, of course his star Tom Hanks. It's again, this is sort of a trailer review session here for all of us. But uh, you know, the, it looks uh, effective in some ways. But uh, you know, by now, a filmmaker of Spielberg's almost instantly identifiable visual personality, you just think, you do wonder if he wouldn't be better off switching out a few key collaborators, a new composer, <laughs> you know, a different guy. I mean, John Williams hasn't scored every single film of his, but I, I don't think, but uh, but damn near. And, uh, you know, interesting script, you know, just in that the Coens, the Coen brothers, you know, are the ones adapting the story. Right. And it's based a little bit on truth, I think. That's my question, I guess. Or, or, or is it going to be a case like uh, when I went into Lincoln and being kind of feeling like, yeah, it's going to be like medicine, this film. And it, it, to me, it wasn't. It was, it was quite, quite effective in almost every aspect. So that's my question. You yeah. know, I, I'm, I think I'm, it's I'm telling just, that none of us had this film on our top five anticipated. A Spielberg film, a new Spielberg film with Hanks, maybe that is part of It feels kind of like that boring prestige movie. Yeah, I mean, I'll say I'm much more excited about his Roald Dahl adaptation, the BFG, which I I don't know if that's next year or or after that, because that at least suggests something, uh, if not completely different, but that he hasn't done in a long time, children's material. So, yeah, so yeah there's there's something about the, uh, maybe we've been there and, and seen maybe. that, even though it's coming from one of our greatest working directors. Well, and the screenwriters, you mentioned the Cone Brothers listener Rob Cosgrove on Twitter earlier today mentioned that that's really what elevated this movie on his list of fall movies he's looking forward to. And they didn't write the original screenplay. No. They rewrote someone else's screenplay. So you have to wonder how much of that Cone voice is really going to be in this script if they were even trying to infuse it with the cone voice? I yeah, don't know. you never know with those with those jobs. When when are they just brought in to essentially punch it up, or are they really talking about restructuring it in some way, mm-hmm. finding a bookend, you know, a kind of bookend sequence idea or something? Uh, every every project's different like that. But yeah, that's again, I took great heart from from the way Lincoln turned out. But um, I, I don't know. We'll see. Mm-hmm. <laughs> My number one, who will Steve Jobs belong to? Michael Fassbender, Danny Boyle, or Aaron Sorkin? Sort of a variation on Mm -hmm. what you were wondering, Michael. And I think you're largely right, but I'm going to differ with you in that I think there is a little bit of a distinction here among these principal talents. I'd say that, you know, Boyle is definitely a kinetic filmmaker. And while Sorkin as a screenwriter, it's definitely a pace to match, but he's a little bit more cerebral maybe as a wordsmith. And then you have Fassbender, of course. We know film spotting madness champion. He could do anything. So maybe he's going to be the artistic voice that will carry the day. I see what you mean how in the social network, which is the promising example of how this might work out, that definitely Fincher is a more distinct voice than Sorkin. But even so, uh, I'm just having a hard time of seeing how these are going to meld, hoping that they do. Mm -hmm. Well, we're all intrigued by Steve Jobs. My number one question is, is this finally the year of the actress, not the actor? And every year when we're getting to December and we're thinking of our favorite performances of the year, we're filling out a ballot on some poll somewhere, whatever it might be, picking five best actor candidates is always brutal because there are too many to choose from. I always have 12 to 14 male performances, lead performances that I love. I can never narrow it down to five. Turns out picking five best actress contenders is also brutal, but only because I tend to only be able to come up with four. 
And, and it's, I not don't, the, it's not the actress's fault. No, I, mean, I don't. The roles aren't I, there. That's it. I, yeah. But even that said, Michael, I don't immediately blame Hollywood, to my credit, for the lack of juicy roles, though I think that's the biggest part of it. I certainly don't blame the actresses for not giving good enough performances. I do try to immediately blame myself and wonder, <laughs> did I just not see enough films or enough good films and I couldn't cast a wide enough net? I didn't see a good enough diverse array of movies. But this year, finally... I'm not going to face this dilemma, or I'm going to face more like the best actor dilemma. And this question was really prompted by a tweet from Mark Harris, who Michael, great writer, we talked to him a couple months ago about It Follows Mm -hmm. here on the show and also about horror in general. And he tweeted this on August 24th. If the year ended today, I could easily pick five strong best actress nominees from movies already open. Best actor? No. A refreshing change. And so I read that and I immediately thought that seems to be true. I think I agree with that. But I'm going to go check my list of movies of the year so far and think about the performances and and see if that really does hold water. And he followed it up with a tweet and said this. I won't narrow it down, but would happily pick from. And he listed 10 actresses. Five of them I haven't seen yet, actually. Blythe Danner, Melissa McCarthy, Carey Mulligan, Far From the Madding Crowd, Kristen Wiig, I think probably for Nasty Baby, the movie that's coming out here pretty soon. Maybe Mark Harris has seen. And then Helen Mirren. So five performances there I haven't seen yet. But five we have in common. Juliette Binoche from Clouds of Sils Maria. Nina Haas from Phoenix. Charlize Theron from Mad Max Fury Road. Amy Schumer from Trainwreck. And from the movie I just saw before coming here tonight to talk to you guys, Lily Tomlin in the Paul White's film, Mm -hmm. Grandma. Six more I'd add to the list. Alicia Vikander from Ex Machina, Kristen Stewart from Clouds of Sils Maria, Amy Poehler, her voice work in Inside Out, Mistress America, last week we talked about, Lola Kirk and Greta Gerwig and <clears throat> Dakota Johnson, Fifty Shades of Grey. Moving on, we still have coming out this year, Mara and Blanchett and Carol, Catherine Waterston and Elizabeth Moss and Queen of Earth, The Keeping Room coming out with Britt Marling and Haley Steinfeld, and Sicario, which made your list, Josh Emily Blunt. So, Really promising stuff coming out featuring really good actresses in prime juicy roles, in lead roles. But also, right now, we could just stop and we'd have a hard time coming up with the five best from the great female performances we've seen so far. Was that Dakota Johnson pick Mark Harris's or yours, just to clarify? Well, I would love to say that it was Mark Harris's pick. I need the support. But no, that was one I would add to the list. So That's what I thought. Yeah. (laughs) With that, those are our top five questions of the fall movie season and it concludes our fall movie preview any closing titles in all that we've covered that we didn't get to that you're excited about that you want to mention josh or michael i'm looking here at my honorable mentions and they were all brought up yeah so i think we covered it pretty well i mean you're dead right in your anticipation of carol the todd haynes film uh, it was a film where the the, kate blanchett was seemed to be the lock for best actress at the Cannes film festival and then rooney mara won the award I think that just indicates that they're both absolutely sure thing. Hmm. To the degree we care about the Oscar nomination phenomena, they're both going to get a nomination. It's a a really good film, and they're both really wonderful in it. Well, again, that's our fall movie preview. Send your questions and your anticipated fall picks to feedback at filmspotting.net. You can also leave us a voicemail, 312-264-someone's-going-to-get-hurt, 0744, or find us on Twitter at filmspotting. That's Adam Larson on film. That's me. We're also at Facebook.com slash Filmspotting. I was too busy playing. (laughs) Out in wide release, The Transporter Refueled. In limited release, A Walk in the Woods, starring Robert Redford and Nick Nolte in the adaptation of the Bill Bryson memoir. Meru, 
a film I highly recommend about three elite climbers and their attempt to conquer India's never-before-summited Mount Meru, and Queen of Earth, Alex Ross Perry directing Elizabeth Moss. Next week on the show, we are planning to discuss Queen of Earth, and we will return to our year-by-year countdown to share the top five films of 1988. That's the year we're on? That's the year we're on. Yeah, we're on 88. I think that's a good year. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Thanks to associate producer Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at Chicago Public Media. More information is available at chicagopublicmedia.org. Our music this week was by Nathaniel Ratliff and the Night Sweats from the album of the same name. More information is at nathanielratliff.com. Finally, a big thanks to Michael Phillips at Phillips Tribune. That's where you're at on Twitter. At the Tribune website, what have you been working on, Michael? What I've been working—I uh, wrote a, 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 just a superb piece about uh, you know the the persistence of film uh, in the digital age here, both both in Chicago and nationally, both in the projection booth and you know on set. Uh, I'm uh, I'm still sort of amazed at how well that piece turned out. <laughs> we'll link to it <laughs> you in seem, the show notes. You seem stunned. I enjoyed your Wes Craven obit too. That's oh, worth checking you. out. Thank you, more from Michael at ChicagoTribune.com/slash/movie. Yes, please. Thank you, Michael. Thank A pleasure you. as Thank, always. Thanks, guys. For film spotting, I'm Josh Larson, and I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. So, Michael, you're just okay. playing the henchman. You got you have one line, but there are no I'm small ready. parts. There I'm are ready. no small parts. Do you remember who? Uh, what? <laughs> no, what's it's his, a nobody eth- in this case. Ethnicity? No, no, I don't even know his ethnicity. He's, he's bald, but has bald, long but hair has coming long down hair the sides. Okay, yeah. so however, right, 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 people right. who look like that sound. Right, got it. Okay, okay, it's gonna be great. <laughs> okay, here we go.